thank you for that reading of the 45th chapter there about Cyrus. Because a lot of people talk about Cyrus and all of the things Cyrus did, but that verse you read was what verse it was of the 45th? It says, I have raised him up in righteousness and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my cities and he shall let my captives go. Not for price nor reward. Because a lot of people are talking about him hauling the plunder. and He wasn't after those things. He did it for righteousness sakes. And we see that Babylon was a city of idols. It was nothing but idols. And it's emblematic, uh, symbolic of the latter day end. Because we notice in Revelation when it says Babylon has fallen, has fallen. Was the Babylonian system that's over the whole world. It's called Babylon, the great Babylon, the great harlot Babylon, because it's governmental and it's spiritual also. That's why we see the reference to Baal worship and uh, Balaam and all of the other things in the books of the Revelations and about the churches and the different symbolism in Revelations. And Cyrus was a type of Christ, and you have to have the destruction of idols of the destruction of the people that's going against God's people. That's why he says, fret not thyself because of evil doers, for they shall soon be cast away. It's a lot of churches, and it's one of the reasons that caused me pause in the Pentecostal churches about this rapture theory, which is just that. It's a theory because a lot of people look at the earth. We see the kingdom here upon earth. He says, thy kingdom come. We see the new heaven and the new earth that Christ established. And in the book of Daniel, it says a rock cut out with hands. It established a kingdom that will be turned over to the people. So from since those days, the spirit has been working to establish God's people here upon this earth. It's not a failed project that God has going. It's the ultimate end that we headed to. So we, so we see the vanity of serving idols. This is part two. And when he starts off here, he says, Baal boweth down, Nebo stupid. The idols were upon the beast and upon the cattle. Your carriages were heavy loading. They are burdensome to weary. They stoop. They bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but themselves are gone into captivity. This is Babylon. This is the gods and the idols of Babylon being taken away. Baal... I told you it was a reference to the God Baal, Mm -hmm. the idol, B-A-A-L, Baal. But in Babylon, when they used this same name, and we talked about it Sunday in Bible study, that we see Belteshazzar, we see Nebuchadnezzar with this name with Nebo. So during the time of Babylon, I told you about the Apocrypha with those books, uh, that's not scripturally oriented, but we've written the people in there in the Catholic Bible. And so that, you know, we don't really rely upon extraneous sources in church. But outside of church and reading, I think it's a lot of us that have read the Apocrypha and studied about other gods and other idols and the two Babylons and all of the, uh, Alexander Hyssop's book, The Two Babylons. 
those that's interested in the word of God does a lot of studying. It's a lot of studying that we look at that came out of Babylon. This is where the Pharisees was formed is in Babylon. That's where the Pharisees originated was in Babylon. That's the Jews that were in captivity or whatever. We could look at a vast array of scriptures that show that Mary worship indeed is idolatry, which the Catholic Church venerates Mary. They've made to where you pray to Mary. Everything about Mary in Catholicism. Because only the God, the Father, and Jesus Christ are worthy of our worship. That's Exodus 34, 14, Matthew 4 and 10. We can delve into the singular role that Jesus Christ plays as mediator of the new covenant. A role in which he does not need any help, according to Hebrews 8, 6, 9, 15, Hebrews 12 and 24, where we see here throughout the Old Testament, when God says, I did it all by myself, there's no other God beside me. Elohim, Jehovah, and the Jehovah Witnesses, they take that plural and try to make it a single and hollow by Jehovah. You know, I have cousins and in-laws and things that are Jehovah Witnesses, and they're not even good Jehovah Witnesses because they hadn't studied that the leadership that's teaching the people hadn't showed where they're trying to make a plurality into a singular and just Jehovah. You know, Jehovah has a whole lot of names that you name Jehovah by. The God of healing, Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah Raphael, Jehovah Sitkanu, all of these different names of different faces of Jehovah. But God chose that the fullness of the Godhead would dwell bodily in Jesus Christ. I don't know how do they, if they're Old Testament people, how do they get rid of, of in the beginning, God says, let us create man in our image, as our image in likeness. Who is he talking to himself? You know, the Pentecostals, I remember Brother Armand used to say he was counseling his own will when he says, let us make man. No, God, the Godhead, God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, who have been there, the Son is eternal. There is no beginning and no ending. So I say, you're foolish to celebrate his birthday if you think there was a birthday to Jesus Christ. The Word was in the beginning with God, and the Word was God. Amen. That same Word created the worlds. So if, if we've studied the Bible, we see the, that's how the world was created. Jesus Christ spoke it into being. So how can you give eternity birth when God says the only begotten son? Begotten means deity taken out of deity. So that's what worshiping idols does. It gets you discombobulated and not studying and understanding doctrine. You get taken off on a tangent and you become dogmatic about certain scriptures and everything. And now you've become my optic. In other words, with tunnel vision. You're not seeing other religions and other things and seeing what's right, where you can say, okay, well, some of the tenets of your religion, some of the doctrines are correct, but through syncretism, you've brought a whole lot of things else in that's not correct. That's what polytheism does, worshiping many gods, whereas God people have been monotheistic. So that's what happened in Egypt. They worshiped many different gods, and the ten miracles that God worked in Egypt was against each one of those gods that the people worshiped. 
They worship the Nile. They worship the sun god Ra. They worshiped uh, all of these other animals and the things that God went against. Uh, these are not difficult concepts. Nevertheless, there's a vile lesson to be learned from this obvious erroneous doctrine, a do- idol worship. We have to be careful of what we worship. Uh, in Exodus thirty four fourteen, it says, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Matthew 4 and 10 says, Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Not meaning that God is not an entity where Jesus said, I'll give you another comforter, and he'll be in you and dwell within you. He was talking about the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit, which is a portion of that God here. But Jesus said he was going to send another comforter. So it was going to be the Holy Spirit that was going to be in us. But it says, but he's going to testify of me. So the Holy Ghost doesn't testify of himself. Uh, I remember evangelist. He loved to talk about the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost. I don't even know if he knows of the Holy Ghost. <laughs> but anyhow. I was telling you, Elijah was illustrative, and I started talking about Elijah before we left last week, but I left off that. Elijah says disturbing things. There's a pro- this is a prophet's job. A hallmark of a, of a good prophet of God is that he kind of stirs the pot. Yeah. You know, a lot of us have been resting on our leaves, and the prophet or the preacher comes in, and he says things, truisms and people don't want to hear that which is true because it stirs them up it stirs them to action to introspection in other words to looking at themselves because there's a lot of work to be done out on ourselves but we like to get complacent and think we're holier than thou and sit in the churches and look down on the people outside the churches look down on others even look down on some of them that's in the church and they People with the mega churches and all these things tend to what they're doing is heaping the teachers having itching ears wanting to hear that which is pleasing to them. People like to feel comfortable. They don't want you to get them out of their comfort zone. When you get somebody out of their comfort zone, you got a problem when you, you get them out. The lazy boy there, when you move things, the only trouble is that people like to feel comfortable in moral mediocrity. In other words, we don't want to get too holy. You know, you, you holy, holy rollers, uh, y'all too holy. What do you mean too holy? God says, be ye holy because I am holy. So we have to keep on pulling off the old man. It's never an end of putting off the old man because we see the apostle Paul said he hadn't reached that point of perfection yet. He says he's striving to reach of the high, the mark of the high calling in Christ Jesus. He wasn't already perfect. Now, this is Paul saying that he was the chiefest of sin because what the word of God does, it's a mirror. And the more you see yourself, the more insignificant you see yourself. Your insignificance. But if you see in yourself and becoming high-minded and haughty and big-headed and everything, you, something's wrong with your religion. Something's wrong with your religion. 
uh, I was telling you about settling on their leaves, and that was in Zephaniah 1 and 12, that his people was like Moab. They hadn't been stirred up. They hadn't been like wine that hadn't been kept shaken up, and it's been settled there. The prophet comes along and troubles people by awakening them to their sins, making them feel guilty about their relationships with God and with each other. I was going to have to have a conversation with one of my nephews the other day. I told him the same thing I was telling y'all about heart problems and everything. And yeah. They say, well, I'm pray for you or whatever. And I wanted to tell him that didn't make me feel very comfortable. Him saying well, he go pray for me. If I'm thinking that he's not a God-fearing man, that he believes that there is a God, but he don't believe enough to go to church and follow God or whatever, I'm thinking you just like a Catholic preacher's priest or something that's molesting the altar boys or whatever. God's not hearing your prayer. He hears not the prayers of sinners. So when people outside of the church pray for you, it's not like the other day when I was getting ready to leave my rheumatologist that he prayed for me. He said, well, can I pray for you? And I say, yeah, because I believe he's a good God-fearing man. He always addresses me as reverend and talking about the church and different things. And he's in a respectable way. I think he follows God. You know, I hadn't asked him of his political beliefs, but I don't receive him into doubtful disputations that he is a man of God. So when he took me and held my hand and, and hold me down and pray for him, I, I accepted that prayer. But just for somebody out in the world telling me, don't pray for you or whatever, or when they say pray for me, okay, is I'm wasting my time praying for you because God told Jeremiah, don't pray for these people, don't pray for their good because I'm about to destroy them. So don't pray for their good. Uh, God sends a prophet, uh, where was he uh, turn the page on them. He awakens them to their spiritual and moral responsibilities. That's what preaching does. You can't hear without a preacher. And preacher, preaching calls your faith to increase. Because when he's amplifying your sin, the spirit convicts you of sin. If he's a preacher of God, that spirit convicts you. If he offends you, Bless the he that is not offended in me. So if the word of God offends you, what do you have to do? You have to line up with it so it won't hit you. You got to get in line with the word. The word's not going to get in line with you. You remember we were talking about the plumb line. You have to get in line with God's word. We're not fit to cut the corners and accept excuses here. You will either suck it up and act right. Or you won't be in here. God says that his will be done. Not our will. We're not fit to change God. We're not fit to turn him into a casual God that just overlooks sin. These Israelites were lethargic in terms of true spiritual matters, but they had a zeal for God. But of true spiritual matters, the weightier matters of the law, like love and mercy and judgment and all these other things. Now they would tie. They were tied off honors, meant coming and dealing all these things. But they were like the Laodiceans. They were spiritually blind. That was because of their idols and what they were serving. They were serving materialism in things. It was their own righteousness. And that's why I said we had to focus on that righteousness of Cyrus, what God says in his righteousness. God, Cyrus didn't know God. He says, 
in righteousness I was believing, but it has to be God's righteousness. So that's what I tell people. I understand you got a good heart and all this, but it ain't worth a hill of beans. Your own self-righteousness is filthy rags, your good thing. And you have to have a new heart, a circumcised heart that comes from God. When a person is freezing to death, he feels a pleasant numbness that he does not want to end. You know, in the morning or at night, or you catch a bum or something. Once you get warm or something, your body goes numb. You don't want nobody pulling the cover off. You get in the fetal position and everything. And, you know, after a while, that warmness, get that. Don't let the cold air and stuff in. You know, I'm comfortable here. He just goes to sleep and freezes to death because he's comfortable. He didn't got sheltered, but you're freezing to death. You don't realize that you're about to die in this position. We don't realize we're about, some of us are dying in sin. We come lethargic. Uh, money I got out there, and I wasn't aware of my physical condition. I'm changing the valve cover gaskets on my engine, and I stay out there two or three hours. Well, that night I couldn't walk. Mm-hmm. It was because I'm not accustomed to being on my feet no more. They're worn out or whatever. Well, if we're not accustomed to, to, to spirituality, to praying God, to holiness, when we get a, a shot of holiness, there's going to be a, a, a effect there. That's going to be a freak. But we have to mortify this old body. Just like the deeds of the flesh, we have to quit doing them and stop doing some other things. So spiritual lethargy, we can't allow that to sit in. We have to have a spiritual practice. So physical lethargy sits in. This old body, it's good. He's, we have to pull off the corrupt, corruptible anyhow. Spiritually, I thought I couldn't do it. I had a zeal to do it. My body couldn't follow it. So that's what he says about the Jews. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So we have to have a harmonic balance between the two. Uh, But when heat is applied and the blood begins to rush into the affected areas, pain immediately occurs. Though it hurts, the pain is indicative of rescue and cure. You know, as he's warming back up, as you're thawing out or whatever, you you know, if you pour warm water, cold water, it's going to hurt. It's almost like it's cracking or something. It's like giving an alcoholic, you have to nurture him back with synthetic alcohol or something to get him off the alcohol that he has become immune to. Or with sin, we have to, that's what God does with us. That's why a ratification of the old man does not, occur in a vacuum by osmosis simply uh you you're perfect and you're ready to go to heaven it's a process where god purges you the word of god are we listening sanctifies you that word of god in us that word working in us it purges the old man out we don't want that old man to come out We're we're comfortable with him. We want to just lay up and die with him. The pleasures of the flesh. I I was, the the other day I was was going to eat some mashed potatoes or whatever, but I said, no, I can't eat them. I need to eat these lettuce. I need to eat something that's fibrous or whatever because that's my enemy. Man, I wish. It's like on Ghost. You remember the guy that was smoking or whatever? He said, oh, what I would do for a smoke, a drag, or feel that. 
man, what I would do for some good mashed potatoes and gravy and roast beef. But my doctor say you eat salad when you eat your roast beef. Now, he eat you some vegetables or something with fiber. Yes. Because it's not good for your heart. You need to lose weight. You have to do. So now, spiritually, we have to have a different diet. The word of God is our necessary food. We become lethargic without that word. Stop serving the idols of the world because the biggest idol is self. You know that John Kevin, I think it is, says that the heart is an idol factory. Mm. That we love to make idols, everything, anything we could worship, anything that we can give vent to. That's why the fleshly carnal man is enmity with God. He says flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. So we have to mortify the deeds of the body. We have to start letting the, the spirit circulate through the body, putting the old man to death. It's like that heat flowing to that cold person that's freezing or whatever. It's going to be hard. It's going to be a withdrawal. But after a while, you get to where, I ain't got to have taste for alcohol no more. You could sit over there and smoke it and drink it or what you want to do to it. It don't bother me. You can sit over there and eat what you want to do or whatever. I know it's nothing. I know it. it's no harm. In, in other words, my mind sees it. See, as Paul was becoming spiritual, he said, you know, an idol is nothing. And it's vanity the reason that if he would eat meat with his brothers for his brother's conscience because he know that there's nothing wrong with this meat, though, if it's for your conscience, I won't eat ham. I won't eat meat. I won't eat this before you. But he, when he was talking about him about buying meat from the marketplace or whatever. Yes. But for the spiritual effect of it, that's what God used in the Old Testament. He showed some meats and some things as unclean. Mm-hmm. But it was a mental or spiritual lesson to be learned from that. So as we learn it in the New Testament days or whatever, and I tell everybody, food does not commend us to God. Doesn't make a difference what you eat or drink. Oh, he's a hypocrite. He he he's saying something out both sides of his mouth. He just not said that he could eat, but he wanted to eat the potatoes or whatever. But you remember, I said my body is not my body no longer. I know it's gonna cause my body harm. Yeah. I know those potatoes are not good for me. I know white rice and white bread is not good for me. So regardless of what you say, you could eat all you want and you could do what all. And you have to be persuaded in your own mind. And I'm persuaded that I'm trying to get God's body to where it's operating because it's no longer my body. I can't do what I want to do with it. It's not my will. It's hard to break that. It's hard to break those things. Stop serving self. What I want to do, that I don't do. That I do, I don't want to do. So that I'm eating, I might not want to eat, but that's what I really should eat. But that I don't be, that's right. Understand what I'm saying now? He awakens us to a different world, and that's what we have to do, become consciousness of this world as he's quickening us and making us alive. We start seeing things from his perspective, from God's perspective. Though it's hurting us mentally and physically to tell my nephew this, to tell people this, to say things to people, the prophet has to say it. Read the book of Jeremiah, how much it hurt him. Paul says he wished that he was cursed from this 
got from all this for his kindred's sake because of what he had to confront him with. See, but that's that's the way it has to be. Sometimes it's going to be like Samson and Delilah say, you don't love me because you won't tell me of your secrets. I won't tell you if you seek my secrets because I don't love you more than I love God. And he said, don't tell anybody. But the minute you show her that you love her as much as you love God, she's become your idol and now you're bald-headed and blind. Now you're bald-headed and blind. You should love the Lord thy God with your whole heart, with your whole body and mind. If you love mother, father, sister, brother, even your own self more than me. So we have to see idolatry can be through anything and any anything. God sends a prophet to people who are cold in their relationship with God, spiritually freezing to death, though they want to want it to stay that way. He wants to remain in that world he's in. People want to remain. Their religion is good. They feel blessed. They, they go in the church. They worship Christ. They're good with Christmas. They're good with Thanksgiving. They good. Well, it's nothing wrong with Thanksgiving. Let me not pull Thanksgiving. They're good with Easter and all these other holidays or whatever. So your religion is being too absurd. You understanding what I'm saying? But with my religion, I'm trying to say what God has given me to tell you or say. But once you resist that, I stop trying to forge that up on you. Mm-hmm. I made my proclamation of what God had told me to tell you. Now, you might call me obtuse or strange or weird or, or just whatever you want to, but I relieve myself. It, your blood is no longer on my hands. The prophet turns the heat on and they become angry with him when he is actually working to make them better. The ones you're trying to heal, they're looking at you as though you're hurting them and that you're the enemy. He is often accused of causing the pain. You're the cause of the problem. You know, It's like taking food away from somebody that's trying not to die or whatever, and you're trying to help them. And they know you cause, I want this. I, your body does crave this, and I understand this. But if you let me take this away a couple of months, your body won't crave it anymore. You'll go through cold turkey. But seeing the way we are built since we were shaping in iniquity or whatever, God doesn't put us through cold turkey or Total eradication. He builds character in us. So I remember that same evangelist I was talking to him. I said, He don't sin. He's not saying, Well, don't, if you say you sin, you call God a liar. You still need to be worked on. So let no man think he's above somebody else and there's no sin in him. We have Job for that picture. God said Job was a perfect and upright man, but he showed Job that you thought you knew God, but. If God take you through some things, you you could see him better. You could see that he's not imputing your sin because you're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, by his righteousness. So we can understand these things. A prophet's life is not a happy situation. You know, Elijah said he was the only one serving God. But if he had social media or something, he might have could, could have connected with other people because God said, I got 7,000 people over there and bowed to need a bed. Yeah. But see, we don't have social media, so he felt disconnected. It's the proximity of the people that serving God. It may be one to a family, one here and one there. It may not be big churches and big things. Sometimes it's a lonely road. 
as the old people say, it's a, a tough road to hoe. You have to walk this one by yourself. You have to pull your own pee. You have to work your own road sometimes. And sometimes it's a lonely dig. Perhaps the clearest example of this is Jeremiah who moaned and complained to God. This is more difficult than you ever told me it would be. You tricked me. He did not like the position God had put him in. As as I say, read that book and he said God deceived him. Because now all his relatives and everybody was saying, this, uh, preaching is not easy. The, the job of God's man is not easy. Now, the world shows you differently, that people go buy you jets and Rolls Royces and give you all kinds of things. But that's the vanity of serving idols. When you serve God, notice how most of God's people end up. You could end up upside down like Peter. You you could be like Paul with your head chopped off. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you could end up people really hating your guts. Jeremiah said it was more difficult. And he said he was going to stop. You remember he said he would stop being God's prophet. That's when God said if you repent and stop talking his foolishness, then you can do these things for me. Mm -hmm. Because he said he wasn't going to speak no more in God's name. He said you tricked me. He wanted people to like him, which is understandable. We all want people to like us. Oh, yes. yeah. that, that's what the people are. If How many, what the social media, how many likes you get? Mm-hmm. How many likes you get for whatever you say? Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, he was still faithful and he did his job. Yet he was in trouble his whole life from his teenage years on. He was thrown in the cistern, in the muck, and mire. He didn't want to go to Egypt with the people. The people made him. They drug him to Egypt. He was in trouble all his whole life. That's the way God's prophets are. Take up your cross and follow after him. Deny yourself. Self has to be denied. That's an idol. Self wants to sit on the throne. Self wants to be served. There are several ideas as to exactly what Elijah meant by how long will you falter between two opinions. You remember when he called them all to Mount Carmel to go against the prophets of Baal. One idea is that he means how long are you going to hop from branch to branch like a bird in the tree. The bird cannot make up its mind whether it wants to settle down or just keep hopping around. The grass is green on the other side. You want to serve this guy? You want to do this? You don't know which one you want. Is that what he said to the lad to say? I wish you were hot or cold. But since you lukewarm, I'm spit you out of my mouth. You don't know if you want fire for God or you don't know if you want to be cold and tell people you don't know nothing about me. You want to follow the world here. Another idea is that it pictures a person shifting his weight from one foot to another indicating a degree of lameness. That kind of makes me think about myself after working on that car this week. Mm-hmm. I was lame in both knees. I'm knees. I'm trying to walk, and I can't stand up on this leg. And when I try to hop on this leg, I can't hop on that leg. So I'm trying to hop from foot to foot to get from the place. So I collapse at the bed and say, oh, I need you to wait on me tonight. I can't do nothing. Now, third is that he's describing somebody 
teetering on a tightrope and trying to maintain his balance. We're trying to please the world. We're trying to serve two different masters, which we it's impossible to do. We're trying to stay in the world and in love with the world. We're trying to please other people and please God. You got to, do you say either you're for me or you're against me? You're for me or you're against me. Whatever the case, there's no doubt about Elijah's intent. How long will you, you choose the God that you will serve? If you make a choice, your life's going to be better. You go, it's going to be much better for you. But if you choose God, remember, he's a jealous God. He's going to want you to serve no other gods. And you can't look back once you take hold of the plow. Their spiritual lethargy for the true God made them uncommitted. That was the same thing through Joshua's time. All of the people's time, God's people have always been on the fence. The church is on the fence now. And that's what's going on in this end time church. That's why he need the Elijahs of this day to turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the sons' hearts to the fathers. But it's the preaching, a true preaching, not a lukewarmness, not this love and phileo love. It has to be agape love, but it has to be through the strength of the gospel preaching the word of God. That commitment went one way, and then it went the other way. Once Elijah began preaching, their conscience pricked them and encouraged them to worship the true God. But their carnality and their fear of men persuaded them to worship Baal because they wanted to be friends with their fellow Israelites. So let me do what they're doing around Christmas time. Let me do what they're doing about the game and about television, about these other things, not knowing all of these things are idols within themselves that God wants you to overcome. I'm not saying they're evil within themselves. Like people talk about science and technology and we're against all of these other things. Well, it was technology the other night that my doctor called me uh, yesterday and told me, say, well, what happened to you last night? Did, did you feel any difference around 8.30, exactly? What were you doing? Why? That's why I'm calling. I said, now these people be on television about the alibis and what they was doing on this day at this time or whatever. And I'm like... I don't know what I was doing last night at eight thirty. I said, I know. I told my wife I might have had a little light headache or whatever. He said, Well, at eight thirty-eight, that pacemaker you have is hooked up to Bluetooth. It's hooked up to these electronics. Wherever that computer is in New York, Illinois, Washington, wherever it is, it registered that you had a fifteen-second episode where your heart was racing dramatically. And that you need to come in. We're going to take an echocardiograph and we're going to do some other work. And then he had to add a pill to me to stop, try to stop that from happening. I thank God for it because years ago, some of this technology we didn't have and people had heart attacks and strokes or whatever. He says, this may help prevent a stroke or heart attack or some other illness. So God gives man the technology so that's why I was telling us all during the time of COVID and they developing the vaccine, 
Don't say that this is demonic and thank the government. God is in control. Your faith has to be in God, and God works through man. Please understand that. Stop looking for a devil behind every bush. It's just that we don't make an idol out of technology. We don't worship technology. But God saw everything, and everything was good. See, if, if we allowed evil in the world, it wasn't God that allowed evil in the world. It was us that ate of the tree of good and evil, of the tree of knowledge. And that's the problem. They were straddling the fence in a precarious state of imbalance, attempting to combine the worship of God with the more popular worship of Baal and Asherah. This is typical of God's people, and it's the end-time church, syncretism, but syncretism won't work. Syncretism won't work. You can't combine. Before you can build God an altar, you have to tear down the altars of those other gods. Yes. He told Gideon, Gideon was going to build God an altar, but before you build God's altar, go tear down your father's altar. Now, Gideon's father, I look at Gideon's father, and he's a little bit stronger than fathers are today because when the people of the village wanted to kill Gideon and get after Gideon for destroying Baal's altar, Gideon's father says, can't Baal defend himself? Can't Baal fight for his own altar? If Baal is a god, he should be able to do something. I'm not fighting against my son. It's just like Dagon that kept falling down before the Ark of the Covenant. If your God is not strong enough to defend himself, that's why they hauled Baal and Nebo off under all that weight because of the gold on those statues. They was going to take it, strip it, melt it down. Since it didn't win going against Cyrus, it was no longer a God. You serving a vain God. That's what one of the, we talked about, I didn't forget his name in the, Seventh chapter, it sounds like Ahaz, but it's not Ahaz. It's Ahaz. I didn't forget his name. Ahaz. Man, it's one of the. But he saw an altar being built. You didn't defeat it. They're gods, and you see this altar. You didn't defeat it. They're gods. Now you want to build an altar like they gods had? That if you defeated their gods and he couldn't defend himself, now you want the same thing? That's what God tells us. If you go in the land and do what the people done that I displaced for doing these things, I'm going to destroy you. And that's what we've come. That's where we've come to the day. We're doing the same thing that those people did. When Elijah preached his message, he put these people in a bind because... They knew their conscience was telling them that they had to commit themselves to God or Baal. Then he tell them, he says, choose the God that you could serve. You know, and he made fun of Baal. He started talking about Baal. And as he talked about Baal, he said, you have to commit yourself. You have to make a choice. We have to choose each and every day. And the choices of the of the things in our lives that's becoming idols or whatever, it's to the degree that we overcome those things. Each day we're choosing the bales. We're choosing God. It's significant. Everything that comes into your life each day is, 
is from God. God's with you that day to overcome and increase in faith. So don't say God wasn't with you. It's a wonderful day, whether it's raining or shine, and God allowed you to live that day to overcome and to glorify him. That's the day the Lord had made. Now, it disturbed them. Only the individual could decide which side he was on because Elijah had made it clear. God does not want you the way you are. Don't let people say, come to him just the way you are. No, you have to die. He don't want you the way you are. You got to have a new heart. You have to become holy. You have to pull off the old man. Complete the ratifications of the old man. Either you're going to be committed to him or not. Don't forsake the sinner. You have to decide whether you're going to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow after him. But you can't be lingering and laggering along the way looking back like Lot's wife. If you're not going to be committed to him, you're going to die. You're trying to save your life, you're going to lose it. Baal, of course, could not talk to them, but if he could, he would probably have said basically the same thing. So the people were in a very uncomfortable situation. Elijah said, well, look, Baal may be using the restroom. He might be going on a journey. Cry a little bit louder. He can't hear you. And they caught, cut themselves and cried and hollered for Baal. If God's speaking to you, Listen and do what God's telling you in the application, amplification. The amplification of that voice gets louder. Mm-hmm. But if you allow sin and iniquity in, that's what separates you from God. That's why God goes silent in the, your life till you can't hear. Because you're not praying to him. You're not feeling and seeing his presence and doing those things that magnifies him in your life. Giving him the glory. The lesson for us becomes clear because Jesus says the same thing in Matthew six twenty four and twelve twenty five. The sovereign creator is not a God who allows his favor to be bought with crumbs. You can't buy God. As you said in that verse thirteen of the forty fifth chapter, that Cyrus wasn't doing it for price or for anything. We have to serve God, not just because he's a reward of those that seek him. We have to serve God because we love him and want unity with him. Amen. And that above all, he's done more for us than we could ever do for him. Yes, yes. He's a loving master who only is to be obeyed, served, and only on his terms. We have to be on God's terms, not our terms. His will be done in its obedience. The first Adam disobeyed. The second Adam, through obedience, he learned through the things he suffered. Job says, though he slay me, yet will I serve him. Idolatry leads to captivity. Idolatry leads to captivity. And I talked to y'all on that once before. Out of Ezekiel 8 chapter and the 17th verse, that 8th chapter and the 7th chapter and the 9th chapter, it shows you about him destroying the people and that he had put a mark on his people. And that they went out sealing those of servants of God in the forehead. 
but he also told them to go forth and destroy everybody that didn't have the mark of God in their forehead. That's what I tell you. The end result, taken, one taken and the other destroyed, people have the rapture preach backwards. The word taken, if they take a city, that means they destroyed the city. Taken means destroyed or removed away. The rapture is not him removing us from this. It's him destroying the wicked. We'll see where he put a seal on those that were his. But he told the angels, it goes through the city, everyone, young and old, start with the old and start at my temple. Everyone without that mark, you destroy. And some of them said, where we going to go? He said, those to destined to the sword, to the sword. Those to death, to death. Yes. God is serious. He's not yes. playing with us. In Ezekiel 8, 17, he said to me, do you see this son of man? Have you seen this? He asked, is it nothing to the people of Judah that they commit these terrible sins? leading the whole nation into idolatry, thumbing their noses at me and arousing my fury against them. Therefore, I will deal with them in fury. I will neither pity nor spare. Although they scream for mercy, I will not listen. That's the living version. He wasn't going to listen to their moans and cries. Their leadership and the people were emblematic of the leadership. Those are the ones you elected. That's what you heard, and that's what you've chosen. Idolatry leads to captivity, and all of those went into captivity. But notice during the Babylonian captivity, some was obedient to God going into captivity, and some were disobedient that didn't go into captivity. He destroyed those. Some of the poor of the land, Nebuchadnezzar and the people left in the land, the till of land or whatever. So that was a remnant, but that was going to be a remnant that come back out of captivity. Those were the ones Cyrus came and released from captivity 70 years later. That's what you're reading about when Cyrus, he's releasing them, not for hire, but in righteousness he released them. We're released back to God, back to our home places from whence we've been scattered in righteousness. Those that want to go back and build the temple of God to serve God. The deceptiveness of idolatry, and that's Laodiceanism. And I want to start on that. I'm not knowing whether I have time to finish it, but I'll go as far as I go. And we'll make a part three of this, even though we may not get to it for some time. Mm. But I want to start on the deceptiveness of idolatry. Hosea 10 and 1 through 2. Israel is a luxuriant vine and a prolific vine. He produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he made to Baal. The richest land, the better he made the idolatrous pillars. Their heart is divided, faithless. Now they must bear their guilt and punishment. The Lord will break down the horns of their altars. He will destroy idolatrous. He will destroy idolatry pillars. The idolatrous pillars. Uh, the Living Version says, 
how prosperous Israel is, a luxuriant vine, all filled with fruit. But the more wealth I give her, and the more she pours it on the altars of her heathen gods. The richer the harvest I give her, the more beautiful statues and idols she erects. The hearts of her people are false toward God. They are guilty and must be punished. God will break down the heathen altars and smash their idols. He's talking about the people that they build the big mega churches, the glass cathedrals, and the big all of the big buildings and the luxurious cathedrals. And we see throughout the world, religion is prospering is a very prosperous thing to be in religion today. But he says their hearts are far from me. It's faulty and heathen gods. Just like he was talking about them in Hosea's and Amos' day, the same thing is happening now. That's why he needs the Elijahs to come and preach what the people don't want to hear, that they lay out the sin, that they locked away. They think they have need of nothing, but they're spiritually blind and naked. Yeah. Oh, yes. The problem between God and Israel is clearly exposed. Hosea describes Israel as a luxuriant grapevine, sending runners in every direction, indicating producing a bountiful crop. In other words, they're sending evangelists and missionaries throughout the world into China and Russia. Throughout the world, the churches are growing and sending out people. Like I said, they have all kinds and all types of ministries. Aren't these the same ones that he says you that they feed the needy? that they clothe the ones that need clothing, they cast out devils. In other words, these are churches that will come to the point where the Lord says, I never knew you. I never knew you. Great prosperity is indeed produced, yet it is condoned in self-indulgence. It's all for self. The more tithes and the more offerings you pay, the more self-centered you become the more prideful you become. The more you think that you can buy others and you lose all concentration in what God is spiritually trying to accomplish in and of your life. That's the vanity of life. The man that gave you the greatest example of this was the wealthiest man that ever lived, and he grew to write the book of Ecclesiastes, all his vanity and vexation of spirit. This is the richest, the wealthiest man that has ever lived. None since him has had the wealth Solomon has had. But since he wasn't spiritual strong, he wasn't spiritual wisdom. He says all this vanity and vexation of spirits. So where do you think you will be? Israel abused its prosperity by using it for purposes of idolatry. God is indicating that its prosperity played a part in corrupting its people's heart. Money, quick riches, and all this wealth is some of your worst enemies. King Lemur in the book of Proverbs, the 30th chapter says, Let me not be too rich unless I curse and forget God. The book of Deuteronomy, God says, You have forgotten who had given you the ways and the means to prosper and to be wealthy. Ephraim had grown fat. Through riches and things, a lot of forgot where we came from. 
A lot of the people that prayed for godly spouses and husbands have so mistreated those husbands and wives that God gave them. And look how you're doing that person that you say you was praying for God to give you a godly spouse or godly children or give you this in life. After God gave it to you, it's in the book of Hosea, you've prostituted it. You went and gave it to other lovers. You gave it to things that you loved more than him. All of his money, all of the riches that he has given it to you, you gave it to another. Remember, he's a jealous God, though. Yeah. This is why the deceitful, divided, disloyal heart is mentioned in context with the multitude of its fruit. That's why we're talking about the Laodiceans. They're not poor, they're not lazy. They're very wealthy, but they're spiritually blind, spiritually inept. Much of the world's appeal is that it offers a seem to offer financial security. However, God shows there's a possible evil secondary effect of this financial security. As people become financially secure, their attention is diverted from its purpose to things that are vain and corrupting. The more finances, the more wealth you get, the more you secure your things in things that raise up fences and bars away from God, the more your heart's not with God. The lay of the sin is not indifferent to making money or making his way in the world. He's not indifferent to improving himself through education or experience. Spending huge amounts of his time and energy Pursuing his own interests. His problem is that he chooses the wrong priorities in life. That's what a lay to see do. He chooses the wrong thing. It's all pleasure. It's all, say, not that it's evil within itself, but it's all on tailgating, vacationing, luxury houses. You're feeding the poor, but you're using them as instruments of Tools to show your wealth. You're not using it the right way. Your wealth is being used as a tool, a weapon, uh, an instrument of pride, a conversation piece. That's the vanity of those idols. You're serving mamma and not God. This pursuit of wrong goals reinstates the actual sins the lay of the sins commit. Idolatry. Placing some something above God in one's life. Well, how is that? Well, he serves himself within the church as if he did it for God. He's acting as though he's doing it for God, but that's the deceit that's enriches itself you're doing it for. It's about you. It's not about God, even though that's the worst thing that the Christians does. And he, that's why he says, I never knew you. I never knew you. Perhaps he's involved in the work of God, but only half-heartedly. Is your heart really in this? Do you really love the poor? Or is the poor is just a bragging ground for you to go back and say you volunteered at St. Vincent to feed the, the hungry on Thanksgiving Day or Christmas Day? Is it just a tool to say that you donated 
$100,000 or a couple of million dollars to this charity, to that. Is it just a bragging right or bragging to, to show your wealth, to show what you're doing? Your philanthropy? You know, a lot of people become philanthropists giving away wealth. But is that on your conscience because of your guilt? Is your money eating at your conscience that there's no satisfaction, there's no happiness in that luxury castle or that abode you had? You can't find happiness even though your success and thing have showed you building bigger bonds, but your soul was in poverty toward God. The vanity of serving self all those years is manifesting itself. Though probably attending Sabbath service faithfully, he is not personally involved with God on a day-to-day basis. You don't miss a church service. You don't miss Bible study and everything. But are you serving God on a day-to-day basis? Is that who you wake up and ask the Spirit to lead you and guide you through that day? That you And let me glorify God. Let me please God in this day. Let me not please self. Let me help me put self to death today. Help me do nothing for my own vain glory. Let me live for God. That's what he said. My will is to do the will of the Father. That's what we should be about. He said, Jesus said, I should be about my father's business. Lazarus' sister was mad because he didn't come to raise Lazarus because they thought he shouldn't let him die. But he says, I must be about my father's business. But he knew the power and the position of his father that he gave glory to his father to allow Lazarus to die to show that God works. He's the resurrection. Put your confidence in him. He may serve within the church to be recognized, respected, maybe even ordained, forgetting that God called him to be a faithful and true witness to him. Not to be somebody in church that's some big elder or some big muckety-muck in the church. That, that's not worth the heel of beans. Are you called to be true to God? Are you being true to God in what you're doing? The Laodicean pays attention to the wrong things. His witness suffers terribly. Yes. And like I said, I'm going to have to end this and do a vanity of vanities. Vanity of Idols, part three.